0: everyone, whether you were a bike shop owner or a sandwich shop, your first reaction was, holy smokes, I'm going to have to close my business.
1: In the weeks leading up to COVID closures, we actually had a dumpster catch fire inside of our primary warehouse. So we started COVID off with a literal
2: dumpster fire. It wasn't that long before all of a sudden we started seeing more demand again and people started to realize that, hey, I can Riding a bike is something I can still can do.
3: There was a time where I was speaking to our SRAM rep and he told me we have $2 billion of open orders. And I'm like, you can't possibly believe
4: those are real orders. Either every existing bicycle owner has to buy another one in the next five years, or the entire third world has to walk into the playing field and start buying high-end bicycles. There's just no way, like it, it just breaks. It breaks simple math.
5: Hello listeners, this is Wade Wallace from Escape Collective. In this four part series, I wanted to explore the events that took place that led the bike industry to the troubling point it's at now. I spoke to over a dozen industry professionals from all over the supply chain, from well-run bike shops to forecasting analysts, distributors, the biggest brands in the world, and manufacturers. It's well known that the bicycle industry went through an unprecedented boom during the pandemic from 2020 to 2022. During this period, travel came to a standstill. Gyms closed, social distancing became a thing, and the bike was the perfect anecdote to that. The economy was propped up by governments and remained healthy, and people still had disposable income that they wanted to spend. This caught the bike industry off guard, and why wouldn't it? The industry had never experienced something like this before and relies on slow, predictable growth and often trying to sell more bikes to the same people each year With the exception of e-bikes jump ahead to 2024 and the bike industry is in strife the world opened back up again in late 2022 and people have resumed life as they knew it new demand has come to an abrupt halt new entrants into the bicycle market have not stayed as the industry had hoped we're seeing massive inventory overruns at bike shops big brands are taking on extra warehousing space Businesses such as Niner, Orange, Wiggle Chain Reaction have gone into bankruptcy. Otherwise profitable big brands have taken on debt to keep afloat. There are brands out there who are doing well, but they're the exception rather than the norm. In general though, I don't think many would disagree that the situation in major cycling markets, aside from China, is pretty dire. This is the first episode of Four. We're gonna bring you on a journey through the COVID feast, the storm clouds, the famine, and their lessons learned in hindsight. In this episode, entitled The Feast, we speak to a bike shop owner, a demand forecasting analyst for a distributor, direct-to-consumer CEOs, and a manufacturer to see what they experienced. I was surprised by their candor. It's clearly a stressful time for nearly everyone, and there were many emotionally charged discussions. People from big brands I spoke to asked to keep their names out of this as they were not authorized to speak to me but clearly had much they wanted to say on this topic. I've paraphrased those conversations to preserve the identity of those people so they don't lose their jobs over this. Ellery Slater, along with her husband, own a bike shop in Boulder, Colorado called Sports Garage. It's one of the top independent bike shops in America of its kind. I've been there and I know from many past conversations with Ellery that she's a top operator and a good business person. Ellery was also the brand manager for Pivot Mountain Bikes during the pandemic and saw firsthand the reckless abandon that guided some of the bike brands during these initial stages of the boom.
0: Everyone, whether you were a bike shop owner or a sandwich shop, your first reaction was, holy smokes, I'm going to have to close my business. Initially, the conversation around the pandemic and the pub, what the public was going to need to do It preceded any one area saying, hey, bike shops are essential businesses of the transportation grid, right? So in March of 2020, we were preparing to close our doors for an indefinite amount of time while carefully listening to the state dialogue about exemptions for essential businesses, and in Colorado, in addition to places like grocery stores and other places, drug stores and things like that, that were deemed essential in the state of Colorado, bicycle shops were deemed essential businesses as a part of the transportation category. And at that point in time, when we learned that we would be keeping our doors open, it was cautious optimism.
5: What started to result with regards to how business went with you know, being able to keep your doors open and and the lockdowns that started to happen and people's response to, you know, outdoor activity and how did that start affecting business? It wasn't
0: as though overnight this switch flipped and all of a sudden the phone just started ringing off the hook. I mean, the cautious optimism phase was like it grew for a while. When things did start to break loose, the first thing that we saw was people calling around looking for a bike and it's, you know, kind of summer started. And initially those phone calls were for bikes that were $1,500 or less. So initially when we noticed the first influx is when we were like, wow, this is really weird. Like we have a lot of people calling and asking for bikes that are $1,500 or less. Clearly these people did not, they didn't have a context for bikes or they maybe would have uh-huh. looked through our brand selection and they would have been like, well, don't call that shop. Right. you know, they, they just have high end mountain bikes. And you had nothing for them by the sounds of it. Mm, Nothing, but but we were happy. We would like send them out. We would be like, well, you can call these guys, these guys, and these guys. Then we noticed that about 30 days into that, then people were asking for like $2,500 bikes. And then eventually that price became $3,500 bikes. So what we observed was mostly those people who were looking for bikes and that were new to cycling, you know, we're thinking about like, Target market. What should we do? Should we change our product mix? Like what you know? Like how do we get through this? Like should we respond to this first wave? You know, we're we're having our own internal dialogue. Do we have the right product mix? Do we not? But then we notice that people tapped out at thirty five hundred, right? Like if you were a person who you were looking for a bike, not because you were a cyclist, but because you're like my family's bored and it's the pandemic and we feel like we need to go outside because you know what? We aren't. Susie's not playing soccer. You know, Johnny's not going to the rock climbing gym anymore. Mom can't go to yoga. We can't go to our club. Like, let's get some bikes. So we really differentiated what we observed was that we really differentiated the buyer who was new to the sport from the buyer who was maybe re-engaging or just kind of going to be doing more of it during the pandemic, right? Because that was one, one of their only options.
5: And were you still getting queries for the $7,000 carbon fiber or Yeti or whatever? Um, yeah. And, and those were those were still selling, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, our regular client base was still buying bikes. Those purchases yeah. in the high end, those were people who were already enthusiasts of the sport or active in the sport. And they, for example, had to cancel their European vacation, right? So now all of a sudden, they can't go to Europe. They're not going to go on a Caribbean cruise. So they're going to take that disposable income, that recreational income that was already allocated, and they redirected it towards upgrading their outdoor equipment. Let's talk about that windfall. Let's stay in 2020 and talk about the word windfall. Yeah. And let's think about those people that are calling and saying, I'm looking for a bike that's $1,500 or less. I largely feel that as things progressed, we saw that actually bike shops, there were two types of independent bicycle dealers that experienced a windfall. One was a business owner who'd been a bit asleep at the wheel and he had a lot of dated inventory that maybe he couldn't Mm. sell through. You know, how many bike shops have you walked into where there's the rack at the back and there's a bike, there's a road bike and it's been marked down two or three times, right? Because it's a couple of seasons old. It was a windfall for those IBD owners. They sold through all of their aging inventory. On the other end, you had the most sophisticated dealers who maybe had high inventory turns. They had no aging inventory. They were probably top performing dealers for their largest vendors or their sexiest vendors or their key partners. And if you were at the top of the food chain as a dealer, meaning you had ranked somewhere in the top 10 you were a priority to the manufacturer. So you want to keep... Nobody knows how long it's going to last. No vendor wants to make their top 10 dealers mad. So when things started to constrain, if you were a high-performing dealer, you did get some favors And when you got bikes.
5: And from where you sit, one of the high-performing dealers, were you thinking at the time, like, this is incredible. This is like, we've never experienced anything like this. Or were you just... You said, I think, cautiously optimistic. Was that the the lasting view that you took or was there ever a time where you're like, this just is awesome. And let, not let her, your guard down, but, um, be comfortable with the situation.
0: It wasn't like we were like, Woo-hoo! we are rolling in the dough. We're just showing up, opening the shop, like slinging carbon all day and closing the doors. Like it was not like that. We had four guys, four guys on our team who would set their alarm every single morning They each had a segregated list of parts we needed for our service department for repairs that they needed within the next 48 to 72 hours, even though we couldn't finish any repairs in that amount of time because of parts availability, right? And each of them, they would break up the list. They would set their alarm at six o'clock in the morning because they knew that the order window, when you could put items in a cart and check out at QBP opened at like 630 AM Mountain Standard Time. And it was a race to see how many of the parts they could get in their inbox and push by now before every other bicycle dealer in the United States did the exact same thing. Every single morning.
5: So this was now your problem. Yeah. This was now your problem. Bikes were going out the window, but this was your problem. And there's a convenient saying, you know, a good problem to have. What was That didn't feel like a good problem to have.
0: Well, I mean, initially, manufacturers were delivering bikes, right? And then... Things kind of started to pile up because they weren't getting their bikes. Remember the port of Long Beach? And remember, we used to see the aerial view of how backed up it was, you know, or there were countries where factories would close. So there was a point in time where, you know, all we heard from our manufacturers was, well, our shipments are delayed. We're waiting for that to come. At the end of the day, did we make more money for a couple of years? Yes, we made a lot more money for a couple of years. But I would say on an hourly basis, we paid ourselves the same. Is that right? The, what 30% more effort to make every one of those dollars. What we started to do was we said, ship us whatever you had. Ship us every part you've got. We will fill the gaps. We took many, many bikes with no wheels. And we figured out the wheel thing ourselves. Actually, what we yeah. would do is we would unbox everything right we'd hang frames on the wall parts everywhere else and then we would build the bike and so yeah wow we did a lot of like creative things i think to get the bike built um but the real heroes of all of that and i cannot underestimate i cannot under underestimate this effort to any high performing bike shop is going to know this it's the staff that spent the time on the phone with the customers trying to help them understand what was happening Part of this um, landscape, the COVID landscape, especially in late 2021, was sold products that a customer was waiting for.
5: Bike shops were ground zero for all the signals that came through for this increased demand. All of those phone calls that were coming through ultimately led to an over-indexing of forecasting back to the supply chain. Pay attention to this because we'll come back to it later. On the other end of the supply chain, I had a very hard time getting someone to speak to for manufacturing. Most have NDAs signed with big brands and don't want to get themselves into trouble. However, I was able to speak to someone who is on the ground in Taiwan, where much of the bike industry's manufacturing takes place. His name is Rob Jetelis, and he owns Factor Bikes. For 20 years, Rob used to own the manufacturing facilities who made brands like Cervelo, Focused, Santa Cruz, components for Zip, Envy, and Bontrager. Rob knows this landscape well, and while now he only manufactures frames and components for factor bikes and black ink, he's still very well connected to this part of the industry and saw firsthand what his colleagues experienced.
3: When the pandemic was just starting, um, at least becoming publicly known, um, was right about Chinese New Year. It was during Chinese New Year. And I just remember sitting at home uh, here in Taiwan, looking at this kind of unfold on TV and, and in the local newspaper. I'm like, this is gonna be a problem. We could tell it was very quickly escalating to the point where at the last day of Chinese New Year, that was when the government basically didn't reopen. And this is really the really important time to hire people because normally you hire people on a one-year contract. It starts right after Chinese New Year and it runs to the following Chinese New Year. And that's kind of the hiring window. And if you miss that window of hiring people, those people will go work at another factory if they're already your trained workers, or, you know, move to another industry or decide to stay, you know, in the countryside at home. But it's incredibly difficult to hire in China um, after Chinese New Year. And I think that's that's all of Southeast Asia. It's not just China.
5: And what was the, the feeling in your gut and maybe the sentiment with other people in, in the industry um, in, in terms of like what was what was this going to look like for business?
3: I think, you know, in the first days, we didn't know, but very quickly, um, the bicycle companies all started telling the factories, don't ship what you've already made, um, and we're going to greatly reduce our purchase orders. So then all of the factories responded by, okay, we need to cut capacity. So if we were planning on building 10,000 frames a month, and now it's going to be 5,000 frames a month. That we now need to staff based on that number, which was a lot lower, and so the factories basically, you know, didn't take back all the workers that they had, let, like you know, let go, or they didn't renew contracts. At the same time, a lot of factories had a lot of product because leading to Chinese New Year, you always build a lot of product, and now the the customers are saying we can't accept it. Now it became a cash flow issue at the factory side because. They've obviously paid all the workers, paid all the material, done all the work, but the brand is now saying we we can't take it at the moment.
5: You say that everyone reduced capacity, um, anchored down
3: and then and then what happened? Huh. The polar opposite. So then we we enter you know the the throes of the global pandemic and all of a sudden cycling becomes the the great savior and every everybody and their brother now needs a new bike. Every brand is now scrambling, pushing their factories, pushing Shimano, pushing SRAM. We need product. We need product. And all of these factories are all in this state of, you know, life support. And now all of a sudden, they're being asked to way overproduce um, product that they just there was just no no chance that this was going to happen. The big boys um, used their uh, financial clout to really push down a lot of the smaller players. You know, specialized was here in Taiwan with bags of money going to different suppliers, securing their positions in line, willing to overpay to make sure that they didn't miss on this opportunity. What was happening? Some smaller brands were getting pushed down. Maybe you had an order in with your, your supplier for, you know, three, four hundred Shimano dure spikes. All of a sudden your durace disappeared. And you know, somebody else got delivery of it, somebody who was willing to pay more or was a more important customer of that factory.
5: What about to to scale beyond capacity? Was was that being asked of of
3: oh, manufacturers? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, every everybody was throwing out these crazy numbers, and they were insisting that you could do it, and they were asking people, you know, to to step up and invest, you know, to build more production lines, to hire more people, and you know, but all of the risk was at the factory side. Some mm. factories were willing to take the risk. Others were not. You know, obviously, group sets became a huge issue as well, right? And so it used to always be that the frame was the longest lead time item. But now, all of a sudden, group sets became a year lead time. And so it then became, again, this super difficult balancing act for the assembly factories because there was this mismatch of lead times. You know, everybody understood what the lead times were, you know, before the pandemic and you knew, okay, I ordered my frames on this day. I ordered my group sets on this day, my wheel sets, and then it all comes in and then we assemble it and we it all ships out. Um, assembly factories were having to rent five, 10, 15 additional warehouses outside because it became this huge mismatch of timings of, all of a sudden, the frame is here, oh, but the group set is still four months away. And DT is asking, "Hey, we need to ship your wheels." Oh, sorry, can you hold those? Because I know that DT had four or five additional warehouses they needed to rent. I know Velo Saddles had, I think, again five, six, ten warehouses they needed to rent to rent that they never needed before. Not because they were making too much; they were almost making the same amount of product as they had always been, but just because the normal cycle was you made it, you shipped it, you made it, you shipped it. Now it's like you made it and then you're hoping that the other parts were ready so that the assembly factory could build it and they could ship it.
5: Mm. With group sets, I don't know if you can speak to this at all. I've heard Shimano have a hard policy of 5% growth year on year. They won't go above that. And and they were very disciplined in 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 that approach through the pandemic. Is that and Shram, I suppose, um, did go and create more capacity um, so that they could manufacture more. Is that
3: your understanding, or that's that's all true? Yeah, is- I would say that Shimano almost found a standstill, um, not just because of the pandemic, but yeah, they were just unwilling to accept you know all of these crazy orders that were coming. They were unwilling to build the additional capacity. Um, there was a time where I was speaking to our SRAM rep and he told me we have $2 billion of open orders. And I'm like, you can't possibly believe those are real orders. And he's like, no, no, those are. Because there was so much what I call phantom ordering going on during this time as well. Of People were so scared, I'm not gonna get my product. So they placed more orders. I'm not gonna get my product. They place more orders, more orders, more orders, far more than the actual demand. So, and the problem is Shram. Was telling you if you wanna if you want your stuff you got to get it in your order now for two years from now, and you're like how do I plan for two years from now? Um, you know I, I can't plan you know what I'm gonna have for dinner tonight and you're telling me I got to tell you how many bikes I'm gonna sell two years from now. Um, it just became this impossible thing. So you everybody just just started just throwing darts at the board. Just okay, here's an order for ten thousand group sets. Um, you know. Please give these to me in two years. And so it just became this self-fulfilling prophecy of just this over-demand created by this euphoria that people just thought was never going to end.
5: This podcast is fully funded by our members at Escape Collective. In fact, all of our content on our website and our podcast network is 100% supported by our members who believe that cycling media should be independent from the sport and industry we cover. And that we should exist to serve you rather than live or die by our ability to be a platform for the sole purpose of selling you more stuff. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our other work and believe in our mission of independence, please go to escapecollective.com slash join and become a member today. Thank you for your support.
1: We were actually extremely distracted uh, because in the weeks leading up to COVID closures, we actually had a dumpster catch fire inside of our primary warehouse.
5: If we look at the distributor's perspective, the largest in America is Quality Bicycle Products, or QBP, who services about 5,000 bike shops around the country. I spoke to Tay Huang, who was a forecasting analyst for QBP during the time of the pandemic, to understand what he experienced being in the middle of the supply chain between the bike shops and the brands themselves.
1: So we started COVID off with a literal dumpster fire. Uh, It shut down operations out of our primary shipping facility for almost a week. I think we had a significant amount of inventory get destroyed from smoke damage. So once the COVID closures started taking place, there was definitely a sense of like, whoa, one, two punch. What does this mean? And then you can easily Google it for yourself. But there was a significant amount of backlash because QVP let go of, want to say it was around 100 employees uh, over Zoom meetings. Uh, I think it was early April. Our sales just flatlined overnight. It was... The end of the bicycle retail world as far as we are concerned.
5: When did it start becoming apparent that it's not all doom and gloom and that the actual industry was about to experience a windfall?
1: From pretty much the moment it started to ramp back up until late 2021, it was 50, 60 hour weeks. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't like Analytical requests, you know, um, what is selling? Uh, that was one of the first things. It was it was a major analysis of of what categories were moving early in the pandemic and which ones weren't. And it was really obvious but by before that summer was even over that the online retailers effectively never shut down and they were hoovering up uh more of the Gucci stuff. Carbon. Right. Garment head units, uh, wheels, uh, uh, fancy tires, and then to the degree that the the normal brick and mortar shops were doing business, it was a lot more um, everyday type of product.
5: And what were the challenges at that point with keeping up with this unexpected demand? What what, what did you have to do to manage that?
1: this is something you don't want to quote me on, but my recollection is at least $1 million PO got canceled, uh, if not more. And we we burned a lot of bridges in those early few weeks because the, the the rate at which sales has slowed down, I think leadership's approach was just, we can't take on any of this product that we promised. We had let go of all those employees, they were they were really just buttoning up expecting an extended drought right and so kill uh, stopping any of that product from landing that we 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 could have done we we did got it and and as a result of that when things started ramping back up by by late spring early summer it had put us at the back of the line, as it were, in a lot of cases. Right. A lot of our orders had already been reassigned to other people who had not canceled them. Yeah, that was a that was a nasty shock. There was a lot of product that had extended delays as a result of that. Uh, a year, 18 months before we got that back in stock.
5: I heard a lot of this, you know, Shimano's or whatever saying it's, it's 400 days lead time for this crank set or whatever it might be. How did you deal with getting some of those, or did you just forego the sales? In Q's case,
1: we had enough weight, I think, to kind of push our way around the line. Our sales pitch is the product will get to you on time quickly, and we always have it in stock. And for 20 odd years, that was enough to get us to the top of the to the to the top of the pile. Yeah. So, you know, we were we were getting a hold of what we could. Um, but I mean, the reality was at, at that point, they were already shipping off what they'd anticipated. They were probably going to sell for the year. They were probably already talking about what we're going to do next year. Uh, I think again, you've probably heard, but Shimano Shimano made almost no, uh, attempt to increase their production lines, uh, with any kind of investment. I think they like did some extra staffing or something.
5: Were 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 things in the warehouse getting really lean at this time, and were you constantly out of product, or how was that cash going?
1: Yep, we were perennially out of stock. The volume was so high, we had to call in what we call the the the, the fire squad, which is when they asked office staff to help pick orders while it was blatantly obvious that more and more units in the warehouse were empty and staying empty that ended up creating other issues uh i think 2020 or thereabouts we were scheduling a a complete overhaul to our website and and so features like back order had not been implemented yet uh we did not have the ability to you know show only in stock items So retailers were two straight years yelling at us, we need back orders and we need to be able to filter out how to stock product. We ended up re-diverting a lot of resources to to band-aiding those features onto the website over the course of the pandemic, just in time for sales to fall back off again.
5: (laughs) Was first-party data an issue for you, actually understanding what was happening uh, how much was being sold through, or did you even care about that at the time?
1: Prior to COVID and after COVID, <laughs> I would say that was more of a concern. Uh, during the, the the peak years of COVID, we were so far below what we wanted to produce that knowing what the retailers were selling on a bike perspective really didn't matter because we wouldn't be able to 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 deliver anything near what we wanted to deliver. Right. We were still pretty confident through most of COVID like um, that if we were having inventory issues, everyone else was also having inventory issues. Our PO cancellations aside. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like um, because we start ramping up for the season late in the winter, (laughs) December, January, February, you know, products coming in hot and heavy. So it's not like we had empty shelves to start they just they got empty pretty yeah. fast yeah for warehouses relative to everyone else's we probably held strong longer than our competition
5: small upstarts were perhaps the most sensitive to the effects of the covid boom no slack in the supply chain limited with cash and up against the larger brands to secure their place in the production next i want you to meet tyler jordan Tyler is the co-founder and CEO of the Canadian apparel brand, Seven Mesh. He's not cut from the same cloth as many upstart apparel brands though. His previous career was the CEO of outdoor apparel giant, Arcteryx. Seven Mesh is a business designed around wholesale. That means selling to retailers and distributors. They have their own direct-to-consumer e-com site, but that's not how the business was set up to succeed. Here's what Tyler and Seven Mesh went through at the start of the pandemic from the perspective of an apparel brand.
2: The amazing thing about it, I think, from a human experience point of view, was how fast everything happened. Just by total coincidence, uh, we had quite a major product launch for that spring. So uh, we had launched kind of a, a, um, a redone collection that was very significant for us. Uh, dealers had booked it very strongly. And so we we're really confident heading into 2020. And we had about two thirds of those orders shipped to our dealers. And we're just you know launching the collection and getting things going. And the impact of the pandemic was that like essentially all of our dealers started phoning and emailing immediately saying, cancel all my orders or put them on hold. Don't ship me anything else. I can't pay for what you shipped me. You know, for, I don't know when I'll be able to pay for what you shipped me. I might have sent some stuff back. And it was across the board. At the same time, we saw our, our e-com demand on our website pretty much go to zero uh, overnight. There was a brief period of time where it didn't improve, and I sat down with our founders and I was like, "Guys, this could be it. Like, we're 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 a young startup brand, and it's like, if you know, if this demand evaporates, like, what do we do now? But what we quickly saw was we, you know, it wasn't that long before all of a sudden we started seeing more demand again, and people started to realize that hey, I can riding a bike is something I can, still can do, and then our business accelerated from there.
5: And so, what did you do with the windfall? How did you respond to the windfall? I suppose with the the demand that just quickly came after.
2: There were some aspects of the pandemic boom that were fun. And it was a terrible time in terms of worrying about what was happening to people and the impacts it had on the economies and our cultures and, you know, our communities and our loved ones. And I, I don't mean to take away from that at all. You know, we were a micro small business fighting to find its place in the world. And we ended up getting discovered by a lot of cyclists. And so our our business acceleration during the pandemic wasn't so much from new riders coming into the sport, it was from passionate cyclists or somewhat passionate cyclists that were doing it more and were doubling down on their activity and were really getting into it. And so uh, that was incredibly valuable for us as a, as a very small business. And so there was some fun in that where you know, that growth was good for us because we'd built inventory because of our big product launch, we were able to take advantage of the demand uh, and sell a bit more than we otherwise would have. So we'd forecasted quite a bit of growth for 2020. Um uh, but we, you know, we ended up growing more than that, and you know, virtually sold you know anything that wasn't bolted to the floor. Like all, you know, all of our best stuff was kind of, you know, our inventory was pretty low. Um, and as a small business entrepreneur that's fighting the finest place in the world and survive versus some very big competitors, uh, we didn't like the source of the demand, but you know, but the added
5: attention on the brand by people we're trying to reach was was great for us. It's a convenient kind of cliche to say that, you know, good problem to have, but actually you could very easily go out of business with, you know, um, while making money sometimes with some of the problems presented or, um, you know, just sold out of stock, right. And having people sitting there, what, what were some of the challenges that you faced with this increased demand and how did you deal with them? We
2: navigated the period of the pandemic relatively well, and it was really, really hard work and it didn't happen by itself. And we have some great people, Um, and we, you know, we did pull every trick and string in the book, relationship, network, cajole, you know, find creative ways to solve problems in order to, to realize it, but we did okay. And because we work with, um, we want to work with certain people that have certain capabilities from a raw materials point of view, from a factory point of view, from a supplier point of view. Um, if you think about it as, as things get less commoditized and more specialized, it gets much more difficult for us to make any kind of substitutions and do anything different mm. um, for us. We needed to, if there was a whole bunch of binary things where it's like, we could either get that or we couldn't, I mean, either got, you know, we either found more or we didn't, or we able to build a substitute in time or couldn't. Um, we decided when the pandemic hit, you know, before it started accelerating, you know, we were kind of, we didn't cancel on yours. For, for example, it's one thing we never did is You know, we believed we were growing because we were growing and there was demand for our product. And so um, we were comfortable that we were kind of wanted to continue with our plan. What we didn't realize is that so many other brands, um, especially in our space where we're kind of we use a lot of outdoor materials and kind of crossover and really backcountry, really high quality protective stuff, everybody else was canceling orders like crazy. The outdoor industry, which does a substantial, you know, outdoor and ski, which do a lot of business for fall deliveries. They were panicking and canceling orders, and they were can- some of the brands are canceling orders and leaving the factory stuck with raw materials. And so we ended up being getting caught in the crossfire, where suddenly we found out that our stuff wasn't being built. Two months later, not because we didn't want it, but because they were they hadn't got around you know they hadn't gone around to calling us yet to check if, they, if we still wanted it.
5: How long did you think this demand was going to last for? Was this something that you even had time to think about, or was there like? As this is just demand being pulled forward, this isn't in the new normal. What were your thoughts about that at the time?
2: We were really clear that this is a bubble to some degree. And the real question is, how big a bubble is this and what's it like when it pops? And um, you know, at least in our case, it's not correct to say, oh, everybody just just built stuff and thought it was going to stay that way forever. There were some loud voices that said they thought this was like the second coming of the bike industry. And we just disagreed with that thought that that, that couldn't possibly be realistic. Um, we all believed that that a bunch of these people that were coming into cycling or they were doubling down on cycling, we're going to really enjoy it and they were going to stay. And so we believed there was a component of it that was going to stay. But the conversation for us was, was less about when is this going to end and more about how much of this is going to stay and have we turned the corner as much as we think we have.
5: Were you getting any order pressure from up the supply chain?
2: Yes, I would say- uh, uh, so from from our supply chain perspective uh it got very competitive um for uh to place the right things for the right factories so as demand went up um it got competitive to make sure you could maintain space and get stuff built yeah. you had to make sure listen you had to be on your best behavior because you know the, the the dynamic in the business relationship changed and we saw you know to be honest for a long time it's been imbalanced in the favor of the brands and the factories have been like I said factories got had orders canceled with no notice where they got left with specialized custom built materials for a brand. And the brand just said, well, I don't want them anymore. Yeah. That's an imbalance in risk and reward that the pandemic finally allowed the factories to correct and say, no, no, if you want to place this order, then you are going to guarantee that you're, you're guaranteeing the raw materials. And I want you to guarantee that with a raw material supplier or or give me a letter of credit that covers me for that exposure, etc." So what we saw is we saw the factories rightly, in my opinion, Have more power in the relationship, be able to push back on some of the the what I see have seen seen for a long time to be imbalances in the industry that let them kind of get more of a level playing field.
5: Was there any maybe temptation or requirement even from you know line of credits or if you have investors or whatever to take on more because of um, payment terms or anything like that? Was that uh, did that play into it, especially being at a nearly zero interest rate phenomena time?
2: Yes, that was that was major for us. But um, uh, just to be clear, I'd say that probably took about five years off my life expectancy, stress wise. Um, to have suddenly have a bunch of additional financial requirements happen, not just done as a like, hey, by next season, it was real time. It was like, I need this now. Um, you know, we were scrambling hard, and we again, we were relying on the relationships, and we were well you know, we work with a couple of great factory partners that that like us and trust us, um, but you know, they're part of companies as well that have to protect their own interests. And if they say, "Hey, we we just got you know we just got left with whatever by big outdoor brand, big cycling brand," make sure everybody's buttoned up here. Then we had to get buttoned up like everybody else. And so, mm-hmm. as a small brand, people you know normally bend the rules or not be too concerned. Um, you know, we weren't. weren't losing credit we had great relationships with people and we were meeting the kind of industry standard terms when those terms suddenly became very hard it was very difficult to us and um you know there was it was not at all clear to us that we were going to make it through that at all so it was it was a very very sketchy time and uh and we you know again like i said there were some ups and downs there was some real fun during the pandemic but it was nothing was easy even the good parts weren't easy everything was harder
5: and and when you say that um you know, the, the financial requirements start to get really difficult and so forth. Are you talking about the time of this increased demand when ordering was uh, extra pressure in that? So so the um what I said earlier about a good problem to have, you could go broke while making money. Was that actually the case? With this increased demand came this extra financial pressure that was equally as hard to deal with.
2: Yeah, it was because speaking for a small business, there's a lot of different ways to get into trouble. You need things to work. And this was during the boom. This was not during a bust or slowdown. This was during the growth phase. But during the growth phase, the start of that growth phase was very difficult in a lot of the factories. And like I said, it was really unfair to them, in my opinion. So they needed to protect themselves. And it was all happening so fast, they need to protect themselves now. It was like, hey, you don't have to pay me now, but you need to send me proof of financing so that you'll be able to pay for the order when it ships. That's that's achievable, but it's not something you just have sitting in your back pocket, and it's not mm. cheap or easy to set that up. If you want to, mm. if you want to pay for, you know, you can you can buy insurance and you can get backing and you can get support. And you can, re- but it, it ties up your funds or requires certain guarantees or it takes a while to implement. And so it was a, a those kind of surprises and shocks were happening in kind of real time, and and you're kind of trying to deal with them. So it was it was it was very difficult. And if maybe that's more absor- absorbable or more more routine to handle if you're a big stable business, it's. You know everybody understands the lay of the land, but we're you know we're small and growing, and so things were changing every year, and uh, and we had to learn a lot. Of, we had to learn a lot of new tricks in that time period for sure.
5: Occupying another niche in the industry, Josh Portner owns a parts and accessory brand called Silka. It's a small but mature business with a wide range of products with a relatively complex supply chain. Josh is well-known in the industry and comes from the early days of the pioneering wheel brand Zip. And a decade ago, he bought the Silca name and reinvented the brand.
4: It was terrible, <laughs> right? I think we'd had a couple of pretty dark years before COVID. Um, you know, when the Trump administration came in here in the States, they passed all these, you know, tariffs and steel tariff and aluminum tariff and the China tariff. We don't do anything in China, but, you know, that just has the effect of like raising prices on everything. And our business model had been to assemble everything in-house. And, you know, we made a lot of parts from scratch, but we were assembling 100% here. And so, you know, we were importing gauges and buying steel tubing locally, and maybe a casting would come from Taiwan, but a forging would come from Illinois. And and then we would do the assembly here. And so that 10% tariff, like seventeen four stainless steel for us, went up 250%. And so, I mean, that week hit, and I remember calling uh, the Andys, my board members, um, Andy Orting and Andy Miller, who were, I was with it, it through the Zip experience. Um, and they're just amazing guys who've been around and, and have done a ton of companies and calling them and saying, okay, guys, I've got I've got six weeks of cash. Um, I'm just going to tell the employees to go home and like, I'm going to, uh, we'll pay them until we can't pay them anymore. But I I don't know what else to do. Like, but yeah, the timing just felt like it could not have been worse in the moment, right? I had a good couple of weeks there where I just saw it all slip away. Like there's like if this doesn't change quickly, we won't be here in six or eight weeks. Cause that that was truly all the cat all the cash we had on hand.
5: Jeez. So what was the first indication that this wasn't all doom and gloom? When did things start becoming strangely positive? Or or was there a time in between?
4: We were two weeks in, and I knew we had this, uh, and and this is where the timing starts to really work in our favor. We had this lubricant that we developed that we knew was good. We had the bottles. we We had everything. We just couldn't make it and ship it. And I came downtown, got the company van, put all of it in the back of the company van, and drove it to my house. And, you know, what else were we doing, right? So it's me and my wife and the kids in the garage and we're just bottling the lubricant and and I have nothing else to do and this is all going to be gone. Let me just feel like I can do something. And I didn't expect that not only did we launch it and people started buying it, but, you know, like the YouTube, I mean, there's hundreds of comments and that's when it really hit me like, oh, God, the whole world's at home right now. Like, what what else is anybody doing from that moment on? it just felt like this incredible tailwind. And and from there it was I I
5: honestly barely remember the next year. <laughs> yeah. And what about your other stuff? Because um I mean, as you mentioned, um yeah, you know, the hard goods like like pumps, for example, which you're well known for, um, you said you moved the manufacturing over to Europe and Taiwan. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And did they get and do they get shipped to you or do they get distributed globally from 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 those locations? Uh, both. And,
4: and so where the, the second place we start to luck out is, you know, we, as the lockdowns happened, we had parts on the water. Um, and so the stuff gets stuck, you know, wherever ports, um, as lockdowns begin opening in places, it can be received and put out there. And then as that's happening, I think, uh, people everywhere are starting to get out of lockdown, but still a lot of them don't have jobs. Kids are out of school. People start buying bikes. I think like the rest of the industry, we got that whipsaw effect of, you know, first month, everybody canceled everything, you know. And that just that just piles on to the depression of, you know, <laughs> me with my little six week pile of cash. It was bad. And and I know everybody went through a bit of that, which of course then makes everything that much harder when it does pick up and now they're calling back Oh, actually I want that and I want it yesterday.
5: <laughs> yeah and 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 how did you manage that situation when all of a sudden, like everyone's realizing what you're realizing, and this is actually a, a win for? yeah, so so that, in a way was our our
4: kind of big luck number two that because we'd had all that product moving right as this was happening, for us, the whipsaw went from, oh my God, I have all this inventory in the channel dedicated to these customers who aren't taking it, and i'm I'm now being charged money to store it. The day they showed up and said, actually, we need it, we were like, oh, actually, we still have it. We still have it. Um, We were able from that moment on to really hyper focus on, okay, you know, the stuff I do here in Indy, titanium goods and, uh, you know, chain lube and whatever, um, we are just going to do everything possible to not run out of that stuff. You always got to learn something, right? And and I think the thing that COVID really taught me that we continue to implement heavily now is, is you know, one, respect your supply chain, but two, understand your supply chain. And yeah. And I think one of the beauties of the COVID supply chain was that so many of the suppliers opened up about their problems. I mean, my supplier database, Rolodex, and certainly ability to talk to suppliers about these things. It's completely changed. It went from, sorry, I can't do that, or sorry, I can't make it, or your lead time is 12 weeks. And now they know us well enough that they call and go, hey, I'm running behind. Here's the situation.
5: Help me troubleshoot it. That's a very different conversation, you know? So so this so this windfall it doesn't sound like you were necessarily able to <laughs> sit back and enjoy it you it just caused a, a flurry of activity on your side trying to source materials and parts and to be able to make more product for this extra demand is that accurate to say Oh yeah it was cuz cuz remember at the same time you
4: couldn't you couldn't get people like like even once everybody went back to work not everybody went back to work and so oh uh, yeah yeah i mean we, we we probably averaged 50, I don't know, 50 to 55 hours a week for a year trying to keep up with demand on the stuff that we make here. About a year into that, we really started almost doing sort of like war game scenarios. Like, like, okay, this, this doesn't last forever. You know, a, a container shipment from Taiwan to America went from $2,500 to $25,000. Aluminum went way up, steel went way up. It also became scarce, which drove it up further. And so, you know, it was definitely a period where we were really looking at it thinking, okay, guys, like we're growing in in revenue and in volume, but it's not like extremely profitable. The thing I think our group got ahead of sooner maybe than a lot of other people was sort of this idea that, you know, not all revenue and not all business was worth getting and there were just certain things we we developed this strategy essentially based around seven products we called it super 7 and we said like these are products that we can af- we need to focus on not running out of and our inventory dollars need to be spent here yeah i would say at the end of that first year we got real serious about kind of wargaming the outputs we really came out with two theories. You know, we said, okay, the plausible theory A is that this huge spike in demand is new people coming into the market and that those people, some percentage of those people are going to stay in the industry and they're just going to fatten up all future business. Or, the kind of the other end of the continuum was we are just selling all sorts of extra stuff to all the same people we've always been selling to, plus a bunch of kids that, have entered the market, and that in a sense we're actually just borrowing business from the future, <laughs> mm. right? You know, mm. if we double business today, it it's just coming at the expense of some amount of business for future years, and um, and then you try to game out what that is. You know, if if we you know sold an extra hundred of of this thing this year, does that mean we sell a hundred less next year, or do
5: we sell twenty less for each of the next five years? Mm. Wasn't it tempting, though, with this massive windfall that the bike industry has basically never experienced? And it, it sounds like you're working extremely hard, but um, to step back from that and to have that discipline is quite impressive versus just keeping up with it all. Um, because you don't know how long. This is going to be five years. This is going to be two. Right. Right. That, I mean, that was the FOMO element we yeah, worried about,
4: yeah. right? I, yeah, I remember... Um, Reading that article about you know rad power bikes like buying their own freighter and shipping it to the port of Portland or whatever it was and thinking like oh man you know like those guys are crushing it so yeah you know, like oh, I wish I was in there and then yeah. again dialing it back and and thinking like like hey you stop thinking about you are not them <laughs> and yeah you know here's our model play to them you know let's run our game plan you know there was a a speech given at the virtual. Taipei show by a very significant industry person, from a very significant company. And he showed a graph that essentially was saying they felt that this growth could continue out possibly to 2028. I remember like something that just didn't sit right with me. And I kind of just in a notebook on a piece of paper, kind of just wrote that out, the math of it. And I remember calling Andy Ording and like, like Andy, if th- they're saying that this growth continues to 2028, and to do that from a bike sales perspective, either every existing bicycle owner has to buy another one in the next five years, or the entire third world has to walk into the playing field and start buying high-end bicycles. There's just no way. Like it, it just breaks. It breaks simple math.
5: That's episode one of our four part series in our investigation into what brought the bike industry to the point of strife it's in now. In the next episode, we look at the early signs that this boom might not last forever. What were the red flags? What did all parts of the supply chain begin to experience? And how did they react?
0: In the history of what sport in the universe has the sport retained someone who tries the sport for the first time at 80 percent? No sport ever.
1: All these retailers that had been talking about how confident they are about next year rapidly losing confidence.
3: You need to take these, you ordered them, here they are. Trying to do it in
2: a, a conservative way so that you don't get caught holding the bag eventually.